sudden prosperity fatal to religion, a sermon by Thomas Ashton from 1791, Deuteronomy 6:10-12, When the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord. When the great lawgiver and leader of the Jews had brought his people within the reach of that country which had seemed to fly before them for forty years, when they were now ready to enter upon the possession of the promises, and their hearts which had fainted under the delay of their hope were beginning to exult in the certainty of their success, he seems to have been affected with a sensible concern at the expression of their joy. He was apprehensive for their morals in this reverse of their fortune. He considered that spirits like theirs, which had been so greatly dejected in one extreme, would in all probability be as highly elated in the other, and that their elevation might be attended even with more fatal consequences in their distress. He saw, or feared he saw, that when they should be intoxicated with the delusive sweetness of their better fate, they would punish themselves irreparably with the blessings of providence and make their prosperity a prelude to their destruction. This reflection touched him near. He was not content to have brought them to the possession of their Canaan. He was desirous to perpetuate it to them and their posterity. He knew that his own commission was expiring, that thus far he was to go and no further. He determined, therefore, to supply the lack of his presence by a legacy of his instructions. It was then he meditated and delivered those admirable directions which if they had observed with as much care as he recommends them with earnestness, Israel might have been still a people, Jerusalem have now stood, and their temple remained until this very day. One of the principal of his instructions is contained in the words I first read to you, which from the nature of his design, and without violence to his expression, suggests these four useful observations. First, that a just and constant sense of the Supreme Being is the best security for a man's virtue, expressed in his admonition not to forget the Lord. Secondly, that the sense is often much effaced, sometimes absolutely lost, in a state of ease and affluence, strongly implied in the words, When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware. Thirdly, that such a state lays us under strong obligations to retain and improve that sense upon our minds, which I think clearly intimated in these expressions, Great and goodly cities which thou didst not build, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. After the enumeration of every blessing, he repeats this consideration, that they were not of their own acquiring. 
Fourthly, that the strong obligations on one side and temptations on the other exact the utmost caution from us in the discovery and application of those means that are most likely to preserve it. Then beware. Let us consider the truth of the first proposition. Namely, that a just sense of the Supreme Being is the best security for a man's virtue. I say a just sense because it must be allowed that wrong apprehensions of the Godhead have generally had a very unhappy influence on the interests of virtue, as is evident to everyone who compares the religion and manners of the heathen world. Men usually endeavor to conform themselves to the character of that being which is the object of their worship. The transition, therefore, was most easy from the adoration of beasts to the imitation of them, and what godlike virtues could reasonably be expected from men when a calf was a model of their perfection. But the cause of reason was then sunk to its lowest ebb, when every passion which was a dishonor to the human nature was translated to the divine, when a modesty, intemperance, and inhumanity were the sacrifices with which their gods were well pleased. When every temple was dedicated to a vice, every act of devotion was performed to the expense of a virtue, their whole religion was an introduction to immorality, and piety with them was but another word for profaneness. This is probably the reason why Moses was so particularly solicitous to suppress all personal representations of the deity through his whole economy, not that painting and sculpture were in themselves so abominable arts, as deserved to be guarded against by an express prohibition, but he knew very well that the people would naturally borrow their idea of God from the representations they saw of him, and that the idea of their God would be the measure of their morality." This we have seen has constantly been the case in all the corrupted notions of God, and we shall find that it will as necessarily be so in the more pure and perfect conceptions of Him. You believe, for instance, that there is one God, eternal, invisible, in whose mind no passion of impurity or ill will, no unkind or unchaste affection has any place, who is forever happy in the perpetual love and exercise of reason and truth, preserves them by his wisdom, who form mankind for happiness, and is daily conducting them towards it by the amazing and inscrutable dispensations of nature and providence. This is an idea which is congenial to the clear and uncorrupted understandings of men. It fills the mind with admiration and delight, and excites us to imitate what we cannot but approve. It inspires us with an honest ardor to pursue at least what we cannot overtake, and to be as perfect in our little sphere as our Father which is in heaven is perfect in the highest." No man upon earth who reflects upon the sanctity of God with any tolerable degree of seriousness or consistency can allow himself in any indecency of thought or action. The consideration of his equity must deter us from injustice. The idea of his benevolence induce us to humanity." 
but the apprehension of his constant and universal presence is a very considerable accession to the cause of virtue. The approbation of all good men is as agreeable to the generous mind as the most flagrant odor is to the sense. Tis a natural and virtuous incentive to the practice of virtue. And if this be so strong a motive when we consider men alone as the spectators of our actions, how much stronger must the influence of it be when we look up to the approbation of angels and applause of God? There are few things that have contributed more to the extent of vice than the hope of secrecy, which vanishes at the very apprehension of a being who seeth in secret. What hope of secrecy can he entertain who knows that he is no more alone in his solitude than in the midst of society? nor less visible in darkness than at the noonday. Nay, who knows that his very heart is laid open to his inmost recess, with all the imperfect materials of his thoughts before they are connected or wrought into a design. But our idea of the deity stops not here. We consider him not barely as a spectator of our actions, but as a judge of them too. And he must be an insolent offender indeed who will dare to commit a crime in the sight of him who he knows will judge him, who is sure will condemn him for it. The very form of our law seems to look upon this as an impossibility when it imputes the guilt of every greater criminal to his not having had the fear of God before his eyes. The hope of reward and fear of punishment adds fresh vigor to the cause of virtue. How insensible a man must he be who cannot be allured to the practice of virtue by the hope of immortal happiness, abandoned to the commission of ill, who cannot be deterred from committing it by the terror of eternal misery. You see, then, what a direct influence a just and constant sense of the Supreme Being must necessarily have upon the manners of men. The contemplation of His perfections, the awe of His presence, the hope of His reward, and the fear of His punishment are so many several admonitions to us to walk before Him and be perfect. It is in vain for a man to talk of his faith when he is defective in his works. What everyone does is a demonstration of what he believes. Our actions are nothing but the visible representations of our thoughts, and you may read the articles of a man's faith in the conduct of his life. Upon the whole, it seems abundantly evident that a constant and awful sense of God must be universally attended with the practice of everything that is good, and that there is in fact no difference between the ungodly and the wicked man. Secondly, the sense is often much effaced, sometimes absolutely lost, in a state of ease and affluence. The complexion of a man's mind does, I know not how, insensibly adapt itself to the circumstances of his fortune. It is almost incredible how great an alteration in one is sometimes instantly produced by the least variation in the other, insomuch that one shall scarce know a person to be the same, nay, we even say in common speech that he hardly knows himself. Such uncertain and constant creatures are we, whose strongest resolutions are so easily shifted about by every breath of fortune. 
We may perhaps recollect instances, if we can instruct ourselves without injuring the characters of others, where persons who have adorned a lower station of life with an humble reverence for God and an hearty goodwill towards men, have upon a sudden advancement left every virtue behind them. It seems to be the unhappy privilege of prosperity to rob us of that which was dearer to the royal prophet than thousands of gold and silver. The observation of Moses has its foundation in nature, is evident to experience and confirmed by a greater than Moses who tells us how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God, and we find how difficult it is for those who have them not to trust in them. When we are under any immediate pressure of affliction, when we are despised and deserted by men who look upon God as a present help in trouble, but that exigence is no sooner over and we have recovered the ease of our former condition, then we begin to see Him at a greater distance. We no longer call to heaven for that satisfaction which we can now find from earth, but depend upon the second cause for that support, which ought only to be expected which can never be attained but from the first. We begin to fancy ourselves established even beyond the reach of providence or the possibility of change. We say in our hearts, I shall not be moved. I can never be in adversity. This vain imagination swells into pride, which is the psalmist justly observes as an infallible cause of impiety. The wicked through the pride of his heart will not see God. Neither is God in all his thoughts. There is something in the very nature of ease which is apt to innervate the mind and introduce a languid effeminacy into all its faculties. The senses by an habitual indulgence gain ground upon the understanding and usurp the province of reason, which must inevitably decline in proportion as the sensual affections prevail. The spirit becomes less willing as the flesh grows more weak. We sink into an indolent oblivion of our Maker and fall amongst the number of those, as the Apostle expresses it, are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. We are led by a certain gaiety of spirit which is insensibly inspired by an affluent circumstance into an endless variety of amusements which, being innocent in their beginnings, are more likely in their end to draw us into that which is less so, and imperceptibly betray us into a forgetfulness of God. The harp and the viol, the tabret and pipe and wine are in our feasts, but in the meantime we regard not the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of His hand. Luxury and intemperance are almost unavoidable consequences of levity and indolence, and as fruitful fountains of infidelity. The fumes of excess throw a cloud upon our better thoughts and extinguish the little spark of divinity within us. It was even a proverbial expression amongst the heathen that without eating and drinking the fires of their impurest goddess would be quite extinct which is perfectly agreeable to the account given of the historian of the people of God. They eat and drink before they rose up to play. That is, 
their luxury and intemperance preceded their idolatry. Thus you see how every circumstance of a prosperous condition conspires to steal from us a little of our religion, the irresolution, the pride, the ease, the levity, the luxury that attends it, our daily and hourly depriving us of something that is good. They incline us less and less to retain the Creator in our knowledge till they have reduced us at last to the miserable situation of those who live without God and without goodness in the world. It is obvious to observe here that as every corruption in our principles is followed by proportionate decay in our practice, so on the other hand, every corruption in our practice is attended with an equal decay in our principles, from whence it appears that religion and virtue are inseparably united. They go hand in hand. They support alternately and are supported by each other. They must flourish and fall together. They are lovely in their lives and in their deaths. They cannot be divided. Thirdly, a state of ease and affluence, as it tempts us strongly to lose, so it lays us under greater obligations to retain and improve that sense of God upon our minds. It is one of the first and strongest principles of humanity to make the best return we can to every act of kindness, and the force of the principle must rise upon us in proportion as those acts increase in number or degree. He, therefore, who enjoys the greatest advantages from heaven is obliged to make the most sincere and most constant acknowledgment for them. You to whom the words of the text are literally applicable, who inhabit great and goodly cities which you did not build, who inherit houses full of all good things which you did not feel, you whose country presents to you the purest springs without the toil of digging, and whose commerce supplies you with the produce of vineyards and olive trees, which were planted by another hand, you who are born to such possessions as many by the labor of a whole life are not able to acquire, you whose fortunes seem to be showered upon you directly from heaven, while others are forced by the sweat of their brows to raise them from the earth, as you are blessed with higher degrees of the bounties of God, so you are more eminently obliged to preserve a stronger sense of them. Your duty increases with the eminence of your station, and your obligations to it are multiplied by the number of your advantages. Fourthly, you have now seen that proper conceptions of God are the most probable means of making men good and of keeping them so. You have seen likewise that a state of plenty and indolence is always apt to obscure and sometimes absolutely suppress those conceptions notwithstanding the stronger ties a man has in such a state to preserve them. I shall now point out to you in the last place some of those means which seem most likely to preserve and improve those conceptions upon our minds. And I think there can be no better than those which Moses recommends to the Israelites in the words immediately preceding the text. The words, says he, which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. I shall invert their order and begin with the morning. 
A man that thinks at all can hardly forbear when he finds himself awake without the act of his own will to address his thanks to the power who raised him from that helpless, though friendly oppression of a thought and motion. And is it not natural when you compose yourselves to a state that carries so strong a resemblance of death in it, to send up one prayer to him who is the author and preserver of life? When you thus begin an injured day, when you thus open your morning and close your evening, you cannot absolutely forget the Lord, especially if, in the second place, you make Him the subject of your conversation, too. But we seem to banish the name of God from our discourse, or only introduce it in such a manner as we are forbid to use it. If we did but converse upon the nature of God with half the warmth we usually do upon more trifling matters, we should not easily forget the Lord. The third direction is to teach the commandments of God to your children. But a man cannot well teach that to another of which he is ignorant himself. And every time you endeavor to imprint a sense of God upon the minds of your children, you must necessarily make so strong an impression of it upon your own that you can never be able to forget the Lord. There is one particular institution of our religion which seems immediately calculated to make us not forget the Lord. Do this as oft as you do it in remembrance of Him. These seem to be the most likely means to keep a sense of God alive upon your minds. Such a sense of God is the best preservative of your virtue, and you will find the practice of virtue to be the most solid foundation for happiness, present and future. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.